0: Well, hi, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are starting a new sermon series this week on the book of Jonah. If you know anything about the book of Jonah, then you probably know that it's about a fish, right? It's about a fish. But I don't think the book of Jonah is primarily about a fish. The book of Jonah is about two men and the people that they represent, We're introduced to the first man in verse 1. His name is Jonah. Uh, The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the son of Amadi. And maybe you can relate because there is a lot there. See, Jonah is an Israelite. He is part of the people who stewarded the word of the Lord. They have had the scriptures, God's revelation. He grew up, as soon as he could learn, being taught about God, being taught about his truth, being taught about his world, how to live. He grew up singing the Psalms, the hymn book of the people of God, and he knew those Psalms by heart. Every week he would go to corporate worship, and there he would see a God who provides sacrifice to take away his sin. This is Jonah, and this is many of you in this room you know about the grace of God. You've known about it for a long time. You've grown up hearing the Bible and being taught the scriptures. You can relate to Jonah. But Jonah is not the only person in this story. Jonah is a prophet. He represents the people of Israel. But there is another person that we're introduced to in chapter 3, verse 6. He is the king of Nineveh. He represents the people of Nineveh. They have never heard the scriptures. They don't know about the God of Israel. They have no idea that there is one true God, that he is the creator of the world, that he is the redeemer of the world, that he is the one who provides sacrifice for sins. They have no idea about any of that. And that maybe some of you can relate to. Maybe you are here and you're just investigating Christianity for the first time. Maybe all this stuff is new to you. Maybe you're not sure who Jesus is or what he has done or why we gather and sing and praise and pray. Maybe you're unsure about this book we call the Bible. Maybe you can relate to the king of Nineveh. This book is not about a fish. This book is about these two men, the people that they represent, and a God who pursues. Who pursues one of these people through another of these people. So as we turn to think about this book and the pursuing love of God, let me pray for us. Before we do that, though, I do want to invite you that if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't know where the book of Jonah is, that's okay. We start somewhere. There are Bibles by the bathroom over here. There are Bibles by the front over there. And if you don't know where Jonah is, there's a table of contents in the front of your Bible for you. You can look up Jonah there. And I'm going to pray. And when I pray, if you want to get up really quick and stealthily and grab a Bible, you are welcome to. And if we see you, it doesn't matter. It is okay. You are welcome here. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are thankful for this book. We are thankful that we can gather around your word. We are grateful that you are a God who chooses to reveal himself to the world. We are thankful that you are a God who, in your great mercy, pursues lost people like us. And so we ask that you would use this word now, in this time now, to pursue us, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the pursuit of God starts in verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amadi, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. Nineveh was a great city, we learn in verse 2. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It was a center of commerce and trade. Uh, They were a technological, innovative hub for the ancient world. They had a huge population, lots of cattle, which meant that they were economically rich and prosperous. Nineveh was a great city. But Nineveh was also, we learn in verse 2, an evil city. City. There was evil there. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 6, we find out that it was a violent city. The prophet Nahum, he calls Nineveh the bloody city. This was a city that was marked by violence. It was a city like the cities that I grew up in and Pam grew up in. St. Louis, where Pam grew up, ranks number one on murder per capita this year. Memphis ranks number eight. Just uh, a month ago, about half a mile from my parents' house at the grocery store that they go to um, three or four times a week, there was a shooting there, a mass shooting. We know this violence. We live in a country that is full of violence like Nineveh. Uh, violence that is not just simply in uh, physical aggression, but in all kinds of ways that cause all kinds of of trauma. Nineveh was a violent city. Nineveh was was an evil city. But Nineveh was not only great, and Nineveh was not only evil. Nineveh was also lost. Nineveh was a lost city. The very last verse of this entire book, chapter 4, verse 11, we are told that Nineveh has more than 120,000 persons in it who do not know their right hand from their left hand. It's an idiom that means that they are morally and spiritually obtuse, unaware. That, that, they, that they don't know good from evil and evil from good. It's not that they, they know what's right and they do what's wrong. It's that they don't even know right from wrong. They think they're pursuing the good and they're not pursuing the good because they just don't even know. They, they think they're doing right by worshiping these gods, not even realizing that they are no gods at all, that it's idolatry, that it doesn't matter. They, they have no idea. They are a lost people. You know, Santa Barbara is a great city. This is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Many people consider it that. We have a climate to rival anyone. And our house prices show it. We are a great city. We are a center of education. We have the number one community college in America. We have a top Christian liberal arts school, which is well-known and well-respected across the country. And we have one of the top 20 research institutions in the nation. Did you know that UCSB has six Nobel Prize laureates, one field medalist, 39 members of the National Academy of Science, 27 members of the National Academy of Engineering, and 34 members of the National Academy of Arts and Sciences, has the top engineering and physics programs in the world, and that's why many of you are here. It's a great city. And because of this, there's plenty of technological and engineering innovation that's happening in companies all around our little town. And this city, this great city, punches way above its belt in cultural offerings. I mean, we have the Granada and the Santa Barbara Bowl that bring in world-class musicians and artists that cities that are our size do not have. And then we've got a culinary culture that's amazing, and it's simply there to support a wine culture that's the envy of most of the world. Santa Barbara is a great city. And Santa Barbara is a city that is also marked, like all cities, by evil. Yes, we may not have the same kind of violence. Thank the Lord that Memphis or St. Louis has, but, but violence has spiked during the pandemic. And just a month ago, there was a 16-year-old hospitalized after a drive-by shooting. Back in April, uh, on a street that I passed by, almost once a day, a 17 and 15-year-old opened fire. And uh, hit the driver of a car who then wrecked the car and died. And then there's the violence that happens in all sorts of ways that aren't simply murder-related. But evil is much more than violence, isn't it? It's the injustices that we see all around: racial injustice, economic. Injustice, but it's also the selfishness and the apathy and the loneliness and the hedonistic indulgence that marks the town in which we live. It's a place where people care more and are likely to leave more in their inheritance to cats than children. And it's a place that I would say, and this is my sober, measured opinion. It's a place that suffers from demonic oppression, which manifests itself in uh, an inordinate amount of mental trauma and oppression and in church splits, one after another. Santa Barbara is a city that is great. Santa Barbara is a city that is marked by evil. And Santa Barbara is also a city that is terribly lost. When my daughter went to kindergarten, she goes to a charter public school here, and we were there, and we were talking with one of the, um, we were talking with one of the parents there, and as we were talking with the parent, um, they uh, found out that I was a spiritual leader at a church, and they asked the question, um, so, What do they call, like, what's your job called? Like, what do you, what do you say? Do you call it Moses? What do you say? They, the people call you Moses? What do they, is it Moses, Kyle? They literally did not have the word for pastor or priest or minister. I talked to another person in a coffee shop not too long ago. They had no idea that Christians believed that Jesus historically died on a cross and that they believed that he died on the cross for sins. It's not, that they, it's not that they didn't believe those things, it's that they didn't even know that that was the Christian message. No idea. Barna did a poll back in 2015, and they were looking at um, unchurched populations in the country. They divided unchurched populations into two categories. There were the de-churched, that is those who used to go to church but have not attended churches besides a special occasion in the last six months. And then there are those who they were called the never-churched. Never-churched are those who have never been to church consistently in their life. Maybe once or twice they were invited by someone or went for a baptism or a wedding or something like that, but they have never ever kind of consistently for more than, you know, a couple weeks never attended church. And on that poll, on that survey, Santa Barbara ranked number two in the nation of never-churched. Things have, doesn't seem like have gotten much better because in 2019, they did another poll looking at the most post-Christian cities in the nation. They, uh, they surveyed people and they asked them questions about their beliefs in God, views about Jesus, degrees to which people see faith as important the regularity with which they pray, if they would say they've made a commitment to Jesus, their respect for the Bible, whether they give to a local church, whether they think that talking about their faith with others is important, whether they volunteer uh, in a faith community. And in looking at those, that data, post-Christian cities in America, Santa Barbara ranked number nine. It's a lost city. Sometimes I think it's easy maybe for us who gather weekly together as a community of faith or who work at a Christian college or at a Christian school. Sometimes it's easy for us to forget that, I think, because we have our little community. But that's not the place in which we live. Santa Barbara is a great city. Santa Barbara is a city marked by evil. Santa Barbara is a lost city. And so how does God respond to lost, evil, great cities like Santa Barbara and like Nineveh? Well, God sends a prophet. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, Arise, go to Nineveh. Why? Because God is not evil to the, is not indifferent to the evil of this world. Verse 2, he tells Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God is not indifferent to the evil of this world. And some of you need to hear that. Because you live in this world and you have been hurt by the evil of this world. You have experienced the trauma and the brokenness. And I want you to know that God sees you and he cares. And he is not indifferent towards it at all whatsoever. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. And he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, we don't like sometimes this idea that, you know, in our heads that God would judge and that he is a just judge. But the reality is, is that we're really conflicted on that because deep down we all know that injustice cries out for justice. That's why in our society we have all these calls for justice, justice for Justice for George Floyd. You heard it over and over and over again. Justice for this, justice for that. It's because there's something deep down within us that says that injustice must be met by justice. And God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh to call out against it. Chapter 3, verse 4, this is his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown because God will by no means leave the guilty, unpunished And for some of you, you need to hear that because it's good news. It's good news that God is not indifferent to your pain and to your suffering and to what has happened to you. He is not. And in his good time, he will right what has been wrong. And others of you need to hear this. Because we living in an evil world and caught in the network of evil, we have perpetrated and are perpetrating injustices against others. And you need to hear that God sees you and He is not indifferent. He is not indifferent to the injustices or the violence that you are doing against your employees or your employer or your spouse or your neighbor. He is not. And there is going to be a day When our secret deeds and misdeeds dark are revealed. The great day of judgment. That's why God sends Jonah. But that can't be the only reason that God sends Jonah. Because if God was simply sending Jonah because he cares about the evil of this world and he knows that it must be judged, then why does he send Jonah at all? Why not just judge the Ninevites? Because in His wrath, He remembers mercy. Chapter 3, verse 4. Think about Jonah's message. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 days. Why is there 40 days? You know that number 40. It's a very significant symbolic number in the Scriptures. It was for 40 days that Moses spent on Mount Sinai. It was 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness. It was 40 days that Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert. Forty is a very significant number. It's a number of trial. It's a number of testing. It's a number of preparation. It's a number on which uh, decisions are made, on which history turns, destinies change. And there are 40 days in which Ninevites are given an opportunity to remember that this God is Gracious. And merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And yes, he will not by no means leave the guilty unpunished, but he has provided a way to forgive sins. And so God sends Jonah because he is gracious and because in his wrath he remembers mercy. Because he is a God who forgives sins and iniquities and transgressions. Who cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. He removes it from us. And he throws it into the depth of the sea. That's why God sends Jonah. And who better to tell? Who better to tell the Ninevites about the reconciling love of God than Jonah who has received God's reconciling love? Who better to tell the Ninevites about the God who is merciful and gracious and compassionate and forgives sins than than Jonah who has gone every week to the temple and he has seen his sins taken care of through a bloody sacrifice? Who better than Jonah? And who better than you and me? Do you know that that has been God's plan from the beginning? To have a people so that through that people he might tell the world about who he is. That's why God called Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, he calls Abraham. He gives him a land. Go to the land I will show you, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. You see, in the Abrahamic family, through Abraham's family, the world was to be blessed. And why did God rescue Israel from Egypt? Exodus 19. Verses 1-4, through he rescues Israel from Egypt and he gives them his law so that they might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation so that they might bring God's law and God's truth and God's revelation to the world, to the nations. Israel was the light of the world. That's what Isaiah tells us. And then Jesus, he gathers his disciples around himself and he says to the Jesus community, You are the light of the world. You are a city set on the hill. You are my witnesses. Why are you here? Why do you exist? If you're a Christian here today, why has God not taken you to heaven? You are here to bear witness to the world about the God who is rich in mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who forgives sins and iniquities and transgressions, who has provided a way, who has sent his only begotten son to die, to bear the sins of the world upon his shoulders, so that we might be saved. That's why we're here. That's why we're, we exist To tell the world about this God. And so God says to Jonah. Arise verse 2. And Jonah rose verse 3. And God says go verse 2. And Jonah flees verse 3. Jonah did not like this assignment. In fact Jonah. Jonah does everything he can to get away from this assignment. It reminds me of my friend in middle school. His, his parents said, you have to run track this spring. And so we go out for uh, track practice. We're out there at track practice. And we had to c- run a couple warm-up laps. The first lap was pretty good. We made it around. The second lap, we're halfway through, right? So he hasn't done an 800. I can't do math, but I think it's around a 600. He's about at the 600 mark. And then he just keeps going off the track. Through the parking lot. He's gone. Like. He did not like his. You know, his parents said, "You're running track this summer." He said, "Uh-uh." He went as far away from the track as he could. He just ran, run, forest, run. That's what Jonah does. Jonah goes down to Joppa. I mean, he goes to great lengths. He pays for a boat. This is not like him stowing away, right? He taught, he chartered a boat. That's pretty expensive. And then he goes to Tarsus, which is like the opposite direction of Nineveh. Jonah is going as far away as he can from this call. And the text says that he is fleeing the presence of the Lord twice. Twice, verse 3, tells us that he is fleeing the presence of the Lord. It's a little silly, isn't it? To act like Jonah could flee from the presence of the Lord. But it's also something that I think that we all tend to think. Somehow, God doesn't see me here or notice me here. And yet, you know we can't really avoid the hound of heaven, right? The one who calls us, the one who's after us, the one who loves us. It's why when we avoid his call, we have all that kind of nervous angst going on. It's because we can't get away from this God. His presence is everywhere. He sees us. And before we're so hard on Jonah, perhaps, you know, we can relate. I, um, I'm not a very good surfer. I picked up surfing like three years ago. It's one of those things that I'm learning late in life. Uh, the first year, I decided on a day where the waves were decent size to me. I went down to Rincon I went with um, Joshua Burdett, my colleague, and we go down to Rincon we've only been surfing for three months and I notice like the waves are kind of big it's around Christmas time and people are getting out of the water and most people are talking French so that's when I'm like, okay, people have come from around the world to surf this wave this day and then they're, they're walking down they're walking down the, um, the shoreline and then they get in and then they surf and then they walk down the shoreline and' I'm like, I'm not going through there because then I'm going to fight. I'm, I'm going to paddle around the wave. So I get in. It felt a little challenging paddling. So then the waves come and, and I'm just like paddling really hard. And then the waves come and I'm paddling really hard. And I'm just, my head is down. I'm paddling hard. I can't breathe. I'm just trying to like hold on, get through this, get on the other side of the waves. The next thing I know, I turn around. You know that island where they ha- get the oil? We call it Little Rincon. That's where I was. I had drifted down like the ocean half a mile because the current was so strong. The next thing I know, I am like up on the rocks uh, walking back because it was so bad. I had no idea. I was just paddling, paddling, paddling. But the current took me and it just took me away. There is a current in the people of God a centripetal force that always pulls us inward. It's a current that if we don't fight against, we will be a holy huddle that turns to one another and looks at ourselves and forgets the world. And it happens over and over and over again because this, this is just how it works, people. People. This is how it works. There is just a current that takes us inward and takes us away from the mission of God. And I mean, we can relate, we can understand. Let's not be so hard on Jonah. I mean, think about it mission is inconvenient. For him to pack up and move from Israel to Nineveh, that would not have been convenient. Mission is never convenient. And moreover, he's going to Nineveh. No prophet had ever been called from Israel to go to a foreign nation before. They might have spoken against or to a foreign nation, but never gone to that foreign nation. He's supposed to arise and go to the foreign nation. And he's going to the nation that is the bloody city. It's a dangerous call. So I can have I can have some some sympathy for Jonah not only that i mean he could fail and we relate to that right i don't want to tell my friends about jesus or about share my faith with them or talk about that because i could do it wrong or they could reject me But you know, Jonah, though some of these may have come to his mind, it's worth noting that he's a pretty brave guy. He has already, 1 Kings told told us, stood before the king of Israel, who was not a good king, and given a really harsh word. So he's a brave guy. And, you know, Jonah is not afraid to get up in an instant. And go somewhere very far from home. In a way that is, not in, that is not convenient. He's on his way to Tarshish. What is Jonah so concerned about? Well we find out. He actually tells us. He lets us in in chapter 4 verse 2. Jonah actually goes to Nineveh as we'll find out. And he has some success there. The people of Nineveh Repent. And this is what he says. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee from Tarsus. That's why I was running. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's why I was fleeing God, not because I was worried that I would fail. I was fleeing because I was worried that I'd be successful. Now, that might sound odd, but I have to admit that I can relate. Because what happens with me, say it like, I'm a pastor, which means I love you. But every person in my church is part of my work. So sometimes I get a friend. I get a friend outside the church. And then I'm like, well, they're not going to church, and they don't really believe in Jesus, and I should probably tell them about it. And then they say, like, I want to start going to your church. And I'm like, no! I'm like, successful! You know, because then the conversations at, like, dinner are going to turn into, like, what's wrong with the community groups and things like that. You know, they're no longer about the game. I'm like, no! No! the reality is is that when we're successful sometimes it's challenging because if we were really successful then all kinds of people would start coming to the church and it would shake things up it would change things it it would be inconvenient it would be messy it would be awkward and the reality is is that, that Jonah, see he He understands the God of grace, he knows the God of grace, but but what he doesn't, what he's forgotten, I think, is he's forgotten, or he's, I will say this, what he has stopped experiencing is the grace of God. See, Jonah likes grace for him and his people. He just doesn't know about grace for those people. And I think we can relate, too, because we can start to think that, yes, God is full of grace and he's full of forgiveness, full of forgiveness for people like me. Because somehow, some way, who I am or what I have done, well, it qualifies me for God's grace. Grace. That's what Jonah believed. Jonah believed that because he was an Israelite, of course God needed to be gracious to Israel because Israel was full of sin. But Israel, they were just the kind of people that God would be gracious to, you know? And maybe we think that. That yes, God has to show us grace and mercy because yes, we fail and we falter, but we're just the kind of people that God would show grace to. But what about those people who are those people for you? Maybe it's, maybe, it's the, maybe it's the people that are apathetic. Maybe it's those rich people. Maybe it's that surfer crowd. Maybe it's all those elite, educated people. Maybe it's the blue-collar folks. Maybe it's the folks that, you know, they've got tattoos in places that we don't like. The reality is is that the centripetal force of the church is to turn inward because the centripetal force of the human heart is to think that somehow we are shown grace because of who we are or what we have done and we forget that the same grace that comes to us, the same thing that qualifies us for grace, which is nothing at all, is what qualifies everyone else for grace. That's why... The people of Israel on, in the synagogue on Yom Kippur, the great day of atonement, they read the book of Jonah and at the end they confess, I am Jonah. They're reminding themselves of the fact that they need grace, they need this atonement more than anyone. And just as much as anyone And so here's my question as we come to the end today. Who needs to be pursued? Which one of those two men that I talked about? The king of Nineveh? Or Jonah? And, and which one is God pursuing? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And And how is God pursuing him? You know, it's interesting in verse 3, it keeps saying that Jonah was fleeing from Nineveh, but it equates that with fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because that's where God is. That's where his presence is. It is on the front lines of his mission. And the reason that God is calling Jonah into mission is because it's there that God wants to remind Jonah about the grace that is his. Have you seen the movie, or movie, the TV show, Ted Lasso? I'm not going to recommend it, but some of you have seen it. I won't recommend it, but it's, it's like the only good thing that came out of 2020. Anyway, at, At one point in the show, it's about a soccer club, football club they say, uh, in England. And this American coach has gone over and he is coaching this team. One of the players, a professional football player, has just lost the joy of playing because this is his job. And it is difficult. And he is there, and he's playing week in and week out, day in and day out, going to practice. And he's kind of lost the love of the game. And so the coach, or two of the coaches, say, hey, I want you to meet me at this place tonight. And they have them go meet at this kind of like, um, meet in like a, a neighborhood. And there, as they meet at this kind of neighborhood apartment complex, there's like a little soccer field. And in the soccer field, there's a bunch of fellow, uh, folks playing pickup football, pickup pick soccer, right? And then the coaches say to the professional, I want you to go play with them. And he's like, wait, you want me? I'm a professional. Like, I'm, I'm like world renowned. They've got jerseys named after me. Like, you know, people are wearing my jerseys out there. You want me to go play with them? They, yeah, we want you to go play with them. And they send him out there and he starts playing the game, and as he's playing the game, what he finds out is what got him playing football in the first place. The love of the game. And the coaches called him down there to go and to put on this clinic with these with these other guys to remind him about the joy of the game. The reason that God is calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, the reason that God is calling you and me to go to Santa Barbara is to remind us about the joy of the grace that saved us because that's how we experience it. By going out and seeing God in his amazing grace rescue people and then we remember about the grace that rescued and saved us and is rescuing and saving us. Leslie Newbegin, the missionary, said the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. That's the motivation to be with God, to experience his grace, to be with God in the classroom where the reign of God is usurping the dominion of the devil. To be with God in the hospital, where the reign of God is usurping the dominion of the devil. To be with God in your industry, where the reign of God is usurping the dominion of the devil. To be with God in social services, where the reign of God is usurping the dominion of the devil. To be with God in the bars and in the coffee shops, to be with God and to remember about the grace that saved us, you see there are two people that are represented in this book and God is using one of those people to pursue the other of those people. Which is it? What I would suggest to you is that we need the unbelieving world just as much as they need us so that we can remember grace.